Welcome to the Special Ed Files. I'm Jennifer Laviano, a special education attorney. And I'm Julie Swanson, a special education advocate. Case by case, we expose what really goes on in special education. Each episode, we open up a case based on real life experiences. We reveal where things went wrong and explain the legal implication. Finally, we solve the problem so you don't have to. Let's open up a file. All names in this podcast have been changed to protect the individual's identities. All right, let's open the file on Felicia and the phone. So Jen, what's the story on Felicia? So Felicia is a 10th grade girl who has an IEP, that's an Individualized Education Program, under the eligibility category of intellectual disability. Her disability or specific disability um, is Down syndrome, and uh, she attends her local high school. And I actually have represented her for many, many, many years, Um, not because her parents are aggressive or litigious. Uh, They look at me as sort of like an insurance policy, just to make sure that the team is paying attention and that all the uh, T's are crossed and I's are dotted in terms of the paperwork. And um, we actually have a great working relationship with the team. It's a very collaborative, cooperative cordial process. And, you know, Jen, I could just say that um, I have this type of relationship with many of the parents with whom I work, um, where things are going really well, but they want me at least at the the annual IEP team meeting every year. We have great relationships. It's just, I'm there just to make sure nothing goes left of center. Yeah. And um, and those cases, you know, I, I actually have found that over the years, even the school district and their attorney appreciates that we're there because um, we've been doing it together. We all sort of put our heads together. And so while it seems like, you know, kind of nutty to think that this could be a a good thing, um, it it is. And so since I've been involved since um, uh, she was very little, I feel like I've known her needs and her family for a very, very long time. So um, she attends, as I said, her public high school and about half of her day is spent in the mainstream and about half of her day is spent in a resource room, which is a small uh, classroom where there is a special education teacher. And she works on a number of her IEP goals in that room, as well as in the mainstream. Um, but in that room in particular is where her life skills instruction is supposed to take place. Julie, since you are the life skills lady, do you <laughs> want to tell us a little bit about what life skills are? Right. So life skills are, in my opinion, (laughs) and it's the whole reason why I started the life skills lady, um, can be underestimated and misunderstood. And so life skills generally fall into three categories, practical life skills, conceptual skills, and social skills. And just to name some of them, there's health and safety, work, community use, home or school living, self-care, leisure skills, social skills, self-direction, functional academics, and communication. Um, There are so many areas in which we may not think of what comprises life skills. Um, And I've just uh, read some of them off to you because I can't even remember them all. I have to look at my little (laughs) handy dandy chart, which by the way, I have um, on my website, thelifeskillslady.com. And um, it lists them all. Lists them all out there. That's great. And and really, one of the things that um, I've found over the years that uh, uh, maybe the average listener would not realize is that 
many, many life skills, which, you know, they're, they are um, essential to independent adulthood and their essential life skills. That's why they're called life skills, right? Many of them are not necessarily skills that the public schools teach to students who do not have disabilities. And that is because many of those skills are um, skills that students who do not, do not have disabilities obtain naturally, whereas they need to be taught to individuals who do have disabilities. Not all. And of course, each child is looked at individually and each student is looked at individually. But um, as an example, and, and where uh, we touch upon Felicia and the phone, uh, Felicia's IEP had a goal and services directed at that goal um, in the area of life skills for, to be able to use um, a phone properly, to get help, to call 911 if necessary, to contact her parents. Um, it is, of course, using a phone is a life skill. Um, unfortunately for uh, many of us who have younger younger children, you know, phones these days are something that kids learn how to do before they do almost anything else, it seems. Um, but for many, many students, just using that phone is not necessarily a skill that's going to come about without instruction. And Felicia is one of those students. And so her IEP goal um, included the, the, the instruction of and that she would learn how to use a phone. So we go to the end of the year annual review, and um, we had all agreed um, at the prior annual review that this was an appropriate goal to be worked on in the resource room. And um, the special ed teacher, who is lovely um, and very invested in Felicia's success, um, said that she had um, mastered this particular goal. And the parents were a little surprised to hear that because um, they had not gotten Felicia a phone for a number of reasons yet. And they certainly had not seen any evidence at home that she knew how to use their, you know, either of their phones or their, their landline or um, any, any phone. They'd never seen this skill before. And so they were a little surprised. And so um, they said that they were surprised. And, and I asked, you know, how, in what environments is she mastering this and what kind of, you know, and I do the follow-up questions, which I'm part of the reason I'm there. And in doing so, it became clear that the phone that the teacher was using to provide the instruction to address this goal was a regular hand, you know, not, not, not cordless, like a, a phone where you pick up the handset, like we used to do, Julie, all those years ago with a <laughs> windy cord that attaches to a base, <laughs> right? Now, it was not as bad as being a rotary phone. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was a phone that you don't usually see, you know, anymore. Like the princess um, phones. Like, exactly, right? We really are dating ourselves here, right? right. And so, um, you know, that was what was in her classroom. That was the tool she had. Now, Hello. Uh, yeah. Ring, ring, ring. The 1970s are calling. Exactly. I don't, I'm not sure that either of my children would be able to, to identify the object at this stage. Right. <laughs> so, um, so I mean, it was one of those moments, again, this is a really nice team. They really, you know, uh, care about Felicia. They're working hard. Parents love them. They love the parents. It's a really good group. Um, but it was one of those moments where like, this is what you've been doing all year. And now this is what you're basing, you know, mastery on is, and I, and I had to say, look, I, I understand, um, Sounds like that's, and she, she pretty much said, this is the phone I have. You know, that's the only one I have in the classroom to work on. Um, but, you know, I, I had to say to her, so we have to be hopeful that in the event Felicia's in an emergency situation where she needs to call 911, um, when something like that happens, that we have to hope she's near a phone like that. Because what are the chances that she's going to be near a phone like that when she needs to call somebody? Well, not yeah. today. 
Not um, that, today. That's not going to happen. And you know, Jen, it's such a tiny little thing and they probably didn't think about it and it's not ill will. It, it, it It's just a simple little oversight, but for the student who's trying to learn a skill in which they need to generalize into the real world, it really did matter because nobody uses these phones anymore. Nobody. And, and the thing about it is, of course, then I felt like I had dropped the ball because when we developed the goal the prior year, I didn't ask, what kind of phone are you going to use? You know, sometimes you presume that everyone's going to, you know, all How have dare the same. you? Yeah, right. I'm awful. And, <laughs> and, and it, it, we were able to very quickly agree that the parents were going to get her a phone and send it in with her and that they would use that to instruct um, her on the goal and that we were going to continue that goal for the year and not consider it, consider it mastered. Um, because, you know, we, that's, you know, from, from our view and without being disparaging, you know, she may as well be considered having mastered a toy. It's not a useful functional uh, piece of equipment anymore. Right. And, and you know what, just as simple as that problem solved. And why did it get solved? Because the team communicated with each other and the parents asked, you asked, mm -hmm. it's very simple. So Julie, since you are the person who has the experience and the passion uh, to talk about life skills and to commit yourself to to them so much, um, isn't that part of the problem with life skills is that so many of the tools we have, the equipment, the assessments, even the approach to uh, providing life skills instruction to students with disabilities is, is kind of outdated? It can be. Um, it doesn't have to be. Uh, it depends on what assessments the school district is using. And, you know, Jen, oftentimes um, school districts may not have the most up-to-date assessments. And so as parents, just be aware of how they're assessing them, how they're teaching them. And it's just as simple as that. Communicate with your team so that you understand what are they using to teach them and how do they assess them. And on my website, um, the Life Skills Lady at lifeskillslady.com, um, I do have tons of assessments on there that um, give examples of the types of assessments that can be used to look at life skills. That's so helpful. And, you know, I do want to point out on this topic, because I've seen it far too many times. In this situation, Felicia and her family were fortunate to have and are fortunate to have a really good relationship with their team where we talk and we do so respectfully, even when we don't agree. And there are times when we don't. Uh, but not everyone is that fortunate to have a team like that. And when it comes to life skills, I often see resistance when parents ask for things like phone instruction, like driving instruction, like leisure skills instruction. I see so much pushback. And the answer I've heard more times than I can count when they refuse our request to work on a life skill like that is, we don't do that for the other kids. We don't do that for regular ed kids. We don't provide driving instruction to regular education students. We don't teach regular ed education students how to use a phone, things like that. That is entirely irrelevant. Legally, it's irrelevant, and factually, it's, it's irrelevant because you don't have the same obligations under the law to students who do not have disabilities as you do to students who do. Um, and also, as one expert who I've used many times before, who's one of my favorites because he always just puts it directly the way it should be said, you know, if you had a child in your classroom who was having a heart attack, would you not perform CPR because you're not performing it on all the other students in the classroom? Right. And let me um, go back to something that you said, just for clarification, and that's around driving instruction. Um, I think there's often a resistance to do anything around driving um, because it sort of falls out of this old fashioned um, definition 
um, that we look at or the teens can look at for what's called transportation training. And it's typically looked at for kids who, um, students who may not be able to be drivers and how do they get around the community. But when you are someone who is able to drive, right? And first of all, you have to assess whether or not that's even an option for a student. But think of all the skills around driving. How do you take care of your car? What do you do if a police person um, pulls you over? What do you do if your car breaks down on the road? These are all of these hugely important skills around driving. And Jen, let's just talk about whether or not schools have an obligation to teach a student to drive. I know in my um, experiences, I never asked for the school to actually teach them to drive. Can we talk about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, as with almost every answer when it comes down down to analyses under the IDEA is it depends. Mm -hmm. Uh, It depends on the student and whether the student requires it. Uh, I would argue uh, activities of daily living, um, functional and adaptive skills are clearly outlined in the federal law as requirements of school districts. And I would argue that particularly in some communities where there is not access to public transportation, the ability to actually drive is the difference between an adult who may be employed and one who won't. And uh, that's one of the key outcomes that Congress wanted when enacting this statute was that we would produce students who could be employed or pursue further education um, after receiving their special education programming through um, graduation from high school or aging out of their uh, special education eligibility. So I certainly I I see absolutely no reason why uh, a particular student who requires instruction, um, driver's instruction in a special way. And there are programs out there that do provide driver's education instruction to students with disabilities that are modified and that do um, account for the disability. And I've argued it successfully before that um, it should be something school districts should support. Um, And, you know, when it, when it comes down to it, and this might be a, a good segue in a moment to talk about the law, but when it comes down to it, the, the school districts were required to meet each child's unique needs. And if your child's unique needs means that you need to be given instruction in order to learn how to drive because your disability will not allow you to learn otherwise, well, then I argue that's a daily living skill. Oh, I I agree with you all day long. And I think um, we have we know that we are going to devote another um, uh, special ed file to just the driving issue because it is such a hot hot button topic, if you will, um, and is met with, it's often met with some resistance from school teens. So we will absolutely delve into that in another episode for sure. Um, But in the meanwhile, let's take a look at the law. So much of what we're talking about with life skills and this kind of instruction is falls within the area of the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, that's referred to as transition services. Um, I use the phrase that we mean transition with a capital T because we're not talking about transition from class to class or transition from elementary to middle school or from building to building. We are talking about transition to adulthood. And what the federal law requires is that by a student's 16th birthday, if they have an IEP, the school district must have assessed and provided goals and, uh, goals and services to address the student's transition needs, including, if appropriate, in the area of post-secondary education. Um, in English, what that means is that your child's IEP team is supposed to be addressing 
preparing your child for college if that is the path that your child is heading on, uh, headed towards, I should say, um, as well as vocational and life skills. All of this falls under transition. Now, in some states, the requirement and term in terms of when to start transition planning is younger. Uh, it cannot be older, but it can be younger. And in some states, it's 14. Right. Matter of fact, we just um, passed that here in Connecticut recently uh, for students who have autism spectrum disorders and hope that um, in the near future that that will um, uh, pertain to all students um, here in Connecticut, not just students who have autism. And Julie, in this particular case of Felicia and the phone, uh, nothing that happened here really is truly a violation of the IDA. They followed the goal. We didn't know that they were using a particular phone for it. You know, none of us were interested in getting into a battle about it or exercising any rights in regard. We just wanted to fix it moving forward, which is you know, what we typically want to do is to turn the page and move forward um, on, the, on the same page. Uh, what I will say, though, is that if you are having a hard time getting your school district to incorporate life skills and to address transition programming in your child's IEP, then that is against the, the federal law. And this is something I, I just can't say enough. And Julian, you and I say it all the time. Transition services are required for all students who have IEPs. All students, whether you have a learning disability, whether you have attention deficit disorder, whether you have an emotional disability, whether you have autism, whether you have an intellectual disability. So many school districts are of the viewpoint and team members are of the viewpoint or genuine belief, though misapplied, that transition services are only to be offered to and provided to our most needy students. Not so, not so, not so, not so. Every child with an IEP is required to receive transition services by their 16th birthday. And this is where parents really need to know that because oftentimes um, school teams may say, well, you know, you're fine. Your 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 child is fine. And they're going to be fine, <laughs> and they they don't need anything beyond their traditional twelfth grade schooling, and they have no transition needs. Um, and oftentimes that that happens because parents aren't even aware that there's something even that there's even a requirement to look at transition needs. That's right. And, you know, the IDEA actually requires, um, because one of the things that is um, uh, understood under the, the federal law that many families don't know and aren't told is that um, until a student reaches the age of majority, their parents hold, quote unquote, hold their, um, their rights for them. So basically parents are acting on their child's behalf until that child becomes um, able to make their own educational decisions as a matter of law. And for most situations, that means when they reach the age of majority, which in most states is 18. In the IDA, it specifically says that one year prior to that, quote unquote, transfer of rights, which means the transfer from the parents to the student of the, the right to exercise your IDEA protections, um, one year prior to that happening. So in most states, one year prior to your 18th birthday, your school is required to explain to the student that their rights are going to transfer to them. And there's a reason for it. <laughs> there's actually a few. One is so that the student can begin to prepare to learn about their rights, to advocate for themselves. Two, for those students or families who elect to have the parents continue to have educational decision-making authority through either 
a power of attorney or some other mechanism whereby the student says, mom, I really want you to continue to do this. I don't want to run my own IEP meetings. Will you continue to do it? Which happens frequently. Um, then there is the, the documentation has been obtained to make sure that the school district can continue to communicate with and uh, allow the parents to uh, make decisions or make joint decisions depending on what's happened. And for some students who are not um, going to be legally competent, they're not perceived under the law to have the um, ju judgment and decision-making that's necessary to be legally competent, those families may have to obtain decision-making authority through uh, probate court or some other mechanism in your state or in your jurisdiction to make sure that you are declared by the courts um, to be permitted to make educational and often medical decisions for your adult child. All of that is to make, to make sure everyone's prepared. We don't want to end up in a situation where it's, you know, um, somebody's 18th birthday and um, the student and the parent had no idea that right now, as a matter of law, all the rights are, are transferred to the student. And I, I'd like to add here that if you'd like to learn more about transition, um, Jen and I really simplify it in our video-based, um, uh, our audio, our our video on our video based website called yourspecialeducationrights.com. Hop on over there and we have a whole series on transition. All right, Jen, let's talk about the verdict. So the verdict on this one is that transition programs really need to be individualized based on the unique needs of the student um, and to be updated um, to make sure they're really functional. I mean, to, to spend a whole year working on a skill with a student at the end of which that student doesn't have any skill that they can apply anywhere is a waste of everyone's time and the resources that, that are put into special education. At the end of the year, Felicia could not do something that was a skill that would help her in any way, shape or form, unless she happened to, you know, be given a job someday where the, the company still uses phones from the 1970s. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, to sort of bring this conversation to light, I, I, I might talk about my own son, right? And when we were planning transition programming for him, and we had to consider post-secondary education, work, and independent living, living. And this is where it's going to be different for every student. In my son's case, um, and by the way, he's a wonderful guy. He has he autism. Sure. <laughs> Thanks. He has autism. He also has an intellectual disability. Um, he does not read, he does not write, and he is nonverbal. In spite of that description, he is fabulous and has a ton of skills, okay? But when we were planning his, his transition, we did not plan for post-secondary education, right? Um, he's not going on to college. He's not going to get a certificate in cooking. That's okay, that's okay. We put all of our emphasis on the ability to work and on independent living. And I have to say that my son has a ton of skills with, and he has the ability to get up every day, have purpose to his life. He has a meaningful life. He is happy. And, you know, things turned out wonderfully for him. Yeah. But we designed his transition program around his unique needs. That's the key, Julie. That is the key. So, alrighty, I think we are ready for the rewind. 
the rewind where we take what has happened and try to avoid it for the future, for you, for us, and for all children, if possible. So some things that could have been done differently here. Um, first and foremost, it's always important to have a comprehensive transition assessment. Um, that is a, an evaluation that occurs where you bring in somebody who has expertise in assessing students in their areas of need for transition services. And um, many districts have their own transition evaluators or consultants who do that. Sometimes the district or the parents decide to ask somebody who is not an employee of the school district to do a transition evaluation. But in order to know what to do in terms of goals, objectives, and programming, you have to have a good, solid assessment. And um, at this particular point in time, while the district had been working on some uh, life skills for Felicia, um, because she is not yet 16, they really hadn't done the comprehensive transition evaluation yet. It, it is you know, underway now. Um, but that was part of, I think, what what um, was lacking. Uh, now, that said, I'm not sure that that in and of itself would have solved the problem of the phone. I think really what the, the rewind on that is, is ask questions. Right. Ask and, questions. And we could, we alluded to this earlier, Jen, just communicate with your team, understand what the goals are and how they're being implemented. And in this case, what tools they might be using um, and, you know, get that parent training so that you're, everybody's on the same page so you can help generalize the skills that they're so um, painstakingly taking um, efforts to teach at school. It's it's so essential because the, the whole, especially around life skills, because life skills, unlike academic skills, unlike many of the kinds of skills that school districts are working on um, for children in their IEPs, those are skills that um, are actually observable and experienced by many students at home as well. So not many parents are regularly for high school students um, involved in their child's academics or, or, or um, supporting them that much other than saying, you know, are you on track, keeping track through the parent portals, et cetera, of how they're doing. It's not necessarily instruction that parents are doing at home regularly, okay, under, under normal circumstances. However, parents most certainly are. Uh, observing how their child is doing across the basic life skills of you know, self-care, of whether or not their child is independent in many ways in the household and in the community. So you have far more input into these skills than you might um, on more pure academic skills. And so communication is key because um, I've had many parents where and the team is talking about putting together some supports or even equipment, like an iPad. You know, let's work on the iPad. And the parent says, you know, what I, we've noticed at home is that he really prefers the laptop for some reason. There's something about that keyboard that's much easier for him to navigate than the flat one on the iPad. You know, those conversations, they seem minor, but they can make the difference in how a student is accessing and, pro and progressing in their education. And, you know, generalization is a real key here because you know, kids are not going to live at school. And sometimes when uh, skills are taught at school, not all children are going to um, naturally generalize that without any sort of instruction or making sure that it generalizes into all settings. And so that's going back and having that great communication with the team where you know what they're working on, you know how they're teaching it, and what are the things within the program that you need to be in communication with so you can make sure they're being generalized. 
Yes. So it's, it's, you know, in fact, prepare yourself on that point. Sometimes the skill is being mastered at school and in the resource room, the child is, or the student is able to perform that skill under a certain number of trials with the special education teacher. Does that mean that's a skill that that student can apply outside of school or even outside of that room? Um, is that student applying that skill in the cafeteria, in the mainstream classrooms they attend, at home, in the community? If not, it's not really a skill. It's not a mastered generalized skill because you know, a skill that can only be done in one place is really not useful. Absolutely. So hopefully um, we have come to the conclusion that um, Felicia and the phone wasn't the um, the worst tragic um, thing that can happen in special education, but it just shines a light on how important it is to understand what's in the IEP and how it's being taught. And on that note, we are going to close the file on Felicia and the phone. Uh, goodbye, 1970s. It's time to hang up. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Until we open up our next file, this is Jen Laviano. And Julie Swanson. The Special Ed Files is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Our executive producer is Dave DeRoche, Quinnipiac Director of Community Programming. File closed. <laughs>